Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will rule forever and always. And then the twenty-four elders, who were seated on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God. They said, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was. For you have taken your great power and enforced your rule. The nations were enraged, but your wrath came. The time came for the dead to be judged. The time came to reward your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the chest containing his covenant appeared in his temple. There were lightning, voices, thunder, an earthquake, and large hail. This is the word of the Lord. So, if you're sitting in your seat right now wondering why in the world the church intern has taken up Revelation for the text of her debut sermon, well, you're not really wrong to wonder. I don't exactly know of a whole lot of people who are clamoring to preach on this text. Revelation on its surface is really quite frightening. And in the spirit of Youth Sunday, I'm going to ask that you all humor me for only a moment while I look back on who I was as a senior in high school, since we don't have any seniors of our own. I certainly never would have imagined that I'd be doing this here, even if I hadn't been a Southern Baptist at the time and was actually allowed to imagine myself in a pulpit. I really... (laughs) really would not have been dreaming about all of my future sermons on Revelation. No one wants to get up in front of people on Sunday morning and ruin everybody's Sunday lunch with visions of the end of all things. (laughs) In fact, my senior year, this was 2012 and 2013, I placed seventh in the state of Tennessee at the Speech and Drama League for a speech that I wrote about holding on to optimism even when you have every reason not to. And so at 17, deadly horsemen and bloodthirsty dragons were not really my speed. (laughs) So what happened? Why am I here, seven years later, reading you Revelation 11, verses 14 through 19? It really all began one day a few years ago when I was sitting in my intro to graduate level public administration course and I was listening to my classmates discuss what they would have done about that really pesky group of nuns a few years ago who broke into the Y-12 nuclear facility um, to protest nuclear armament. It was, it was a huge scandal. Um, and as young, aspiring bureaucrats, we were doing a case study on, on how we would have handled the press after that, and I was sinking lower and lower in my seat with each comment, thinking, oh, oh no, I'm, I'm on the side of the nuns here. Um, <laughs> so, clearly bureaucracy wasn't going to work out, and so long story short, There I was a few Sundays ago helping the youth pick the scripture passages for today. I listed eight passages on the whiteboard for them to choose from concerning eco-stewardship, which is the theme that they picked. And thinking that I was being so savvy and working smarter 
not harder, I used the index suggestions from the Green Bible devotional. If you're not familiar with the Green Bible, it's a project where some biblical scholars took the New Revised Standard Version and they put every text that mentions nature or the earth in green, as opposed to putting the words of Jesus in red, as you've seen before. And the devotional that was published alongside it uses some of these green passages for daily readings. And I picked eight of them at random without reading them. <laughs> My first mistake. <laughs> And so I watched with apprehension as perfectly safe passages like 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 10 were crossed out, and we were left with Isaiah 24 and Revelation. And, and please don't think that I didn't try to talk them out of it. I tried. <laughs> I tried explaining that if we were going to orchestrate a good and proper Presbyterian worship service, we would need to temper the despair of Isaiah 24. <laughs> with something softer and more hopeful. And they didn't care. <laughs> so I tried to advocate for the appropriateness of 1 Corinthians 5, which discusses how so many things are technically allowed, but not all of them are preferable. This is the perfect statement for our era of mass consumption and greed, right? They didn't care. So I resorted to something that I'm not exactly proud of. Please, I begged them. Please don't make me preach on Revelation in front of Dr. Brian Blunt. <laughs> and they wouldn't let me off the hook. We're terrified, they said. This text accurately depicts what we feel like we're up against. The world is burning. The nations are raging. One youth even mentioned how their somber outlook was what was most truthful to their faith, that they're grieving the loss of a good creation and they feel robbed of their futures. We know that they are not alone in this. In fact, there's an entire group of young activists like Greta Thunberg who have taken to the world stage to declare that the younger generation feels cheated out of normalcy and they don't want hope. They don't want our placating statements about change and going green. They're tired of being told to just pray for our nation. And so quite tragically, Christianity's traditional and enlightening view of hope holds little meaning to them in this terrifying time. And a blind reading of Revelation lends itself to a rhetoric of fear and despair. Revolution... Revelation still constitutes the weirdest, but also one of the most violent books in the New Testament. It can appear terrifying. But this is only in part because we are all pretty well versed in the genre of apocalypse as we know it. It's a familiar and popular way to explain our apprehensions about the future. But biblical apocalypse, that is Revelation, is not the same genre as modern apocalypse. The revelation of John is not in the same vein of thought as, say, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Because the object of modern apocalyptic literature is to detail the world on the brink of ending, or in the midst of ending, and in the middle of all of that dying, there is usually a hero or a group of heroes who aim to save the world from ending. But this is always ultimately fruitless, and despair reigns. But 
biblical apocalypse doesn't share this message. And what the youth didn't know when they were advocating that I preach on this passage is that I am still very much an optimist. And as far as I can tell, so is the book of Revelation. You see, it's irresponsible to the scripture and to the climate movement to make a one-to-one -one comparison between the events in Revelation and today's events in order to build an apocalyptic narrative for our current predicament for two reasons. The first being that framing the climate crisis in the language of modern apocalypse is just unhelpful. And second, Revelation is not a modern apocalyptic narrative. Its real message is one of hope. And so using it to conjure images of panic and doom is just not reading it responsibly. But why is an apocalyptic narrative, as we understand one, unhelpful? After all, in January of this year, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the hand of their doomsday clock to just 100 seconds before midnight, meaning we're on the brink of a climate catastrophe, one that we might not come back from. This doomsday clock, as many of you know, dates all the way back to 1947 and was used frequently during the Cold War to indicate our proximity toward annihilation that it's been deemed appropriate to be adapted to the climate change crisis is really quite telling, but the issue with this sort of illustration for climate change is that catastrophe is kind of relative. What might be considered a catastrophe to individual species or ecosystems does not necessarily constitute doomsday or the end of the world. There is no such thing as a bad climate that is attaching a sort of moral significance to the climate of the past. The climate has always been problematic for groups of people, vulnerable groups of people across time and history. It's just that with industrialization, it became less problematic for wealthier, privileged peoples. Now, I am not a climate change denier. I say none of this to detract from the reality that this time it is human action that has created climate conditions that are making the Earth more uninhabitable to many, many more people. Entire islands are already being displaced due to rising tides. Global average temperatures increase every year, and our soil quality depletes at a rapid pace, increasing with every day the odds of mass crop failure. And as you can imagine, Massive crop failure would result in increasing political instability worldwide. These things put human life everywhere in danger, and we have caused it. And we can, and we should do our best to correct the trajectory that we are on. That is true. However, framing this reality in the possibility of a cataclysmic end to all human life is just unhelpful at best. Gary Snyder, a poet and contemporary of Wendell Berry, writes that doom scenarios, though they might be true, are not politically or even psychologically effective. The first step is to make us love the world, rather than to make us fear for the end of the world. You see, apocalyptic narratives take us out of our present moment and they transport us to a place of total despair and crippling fear. But then, we are returned to our present, and as the world is currently crumbling right before our eyes, we're suddenly incentivized not to care. 
The world isn't ending right now, and I don't really want to think about that future, so I won't. Speaking of Wendell Berry, in his book, Our Only World, he says that as much as the future is affected by our present, and it most certainly is, the future also tends to annihilate the present. If we spend all of our time worrying about future disasters, then we miss all of the present moments that we have to really affect change in the world today. And so even if, even if, Revelation lent itself to an appropriate metaphor for our current climate crisis, it just wouldn't be helpful rhetoric. And so lucky for us, Revelation is something really entirely different than the narrative of abject, world-ending terror that we want it to be. Don't be completely fooled by Revelation's frightening surface. The violence present in the book comes from a very specific context, and it's part of a rhetorical device meant to illustrate the book's ultimate point that God is the only supreme ruler, and God is very much in charge. Revelation unveils a picture of a world in upheaval as it collapses into war, violence, and destruction. That is there. But this is not meant to frighten its readers. It's meant to counter the narrative that Rome had brought peace and order to all of the people that it conquered. It is not violence for violence's sake. It's violence to counteract the very powerful national narrative that Rome and all of Rome's glory had brought peace to the world, and that Rome and Rome's gods and Rome's rulers knew best. Revelation says, no, this is not the case. The emperor is lying. It lays out in vivid language the terrible lived reality of an oppressed people who experienced marginalization and persecution at the hands of Rome. And it pushes that reality right up against visions of a very glorious future. Revelation's whirlwind of death, resurrection, destruction, reconstruction, war, and peace speak of the world as it really is, and simultaneously it is speaking of what the world can become. Those two things, the harsh reality of a life lived under imperial rule and the coming of the final reign of God clash up against each other. And the effect is like being in an unlit room when someone flips a light switch. It hurts our eyes, but it is nevertheless good news. That is biblical apocalypse. You see, Revelation expects for God to finally bring about the redemption and restoration of all things. And so when the 24 elders in our passage fall on their face in front of the glory of the risen, victorious Christ, and declare that the nations raged and those that destroyed the earth were themselves destroyed, they are not grieving or lamenting. They are certainly not frightened. They are, in fact, declaring God's final victory over the powers of death and destruction. They're declaring Christ's victory over the destructive and oppressive powers of Rome. That, that is good news. Revelation's key point, repeated over and over and over again, is that Jesus is Lord. The seventh trumpet in the passage declares that Christ had finally won and had been installed emperor of the new Jerusalem. 
In ancient Near Eastern literature, sets of seven events were a commonly used narrative trope. And usually the seventh event was always some sort of cataclysmic event. But here in Revelation, the seventh trumpet heralds a military victory that will usher in the final glorious reign of the risen Lord. It does not signal disaster. Recall Genesis 1. Any other Near Eastern god, that seventh day would have been something frightening to behold. But God rested. So, if we are to imagine that Revelation can actually help us understand the climate crisis and what to do about it, we have to reframe the metaphor. And so imagine with me then that the doomsday clock is set to the end of the sixth occurrence in an ancient story. We are then on the brink of that final seventh event, and it should signal that we are up against death and destruction. But if we are Christ-following people, living in a post-resurrection world, then we might just imagine that we're on the brink of restoration, not destruction. Maybe then we might follow God's lead and take a rest. And I don't. I do not mean passive rest. I don't mean that we should kick our feet up on the couch and shut our eyes to the world outside of our windows as the earth heats up and people suffer. What I mean is that maybe it's time we take a break from consumption and say no to the capitalist narratives that demand we live our lives in an endless pattern of production and purchase. Maybe it's time we take a break from political realism, which says that green energy or high-speed railway systems are not possible because it has never been done. How ridiculous that a country which spends $748 billion annually on war and occupation dares to wonder where the money for solar panels and trains will come from. Perhaps it is time that we take a break from our despair and self-pity and stop imagining all of the things we will one day have to give up to survive and start imagining all of the things we can do to help others live. Maybe, as Wendell Berry said, we should stop trying to save the world and start trying to live savingly within it. Maybe it's time we stop imagining and fearing for the end, and we start imagining the inbreaking of the reign of the risen Christ. Because God, and God alone, has the final word, not death, not the office of the president, not British petroleum. That is what the seventh trumpet signals not doomsday. Cast aside visions of the future that cripple you in anxiety and fear. Hold close to your heart what you know for certain, that God holds the future. Revelation was never meant to strike fear in our hearts. It was meant to guide us toward faithful Christian witness and to, as Dr. Blunt has written, challenge the ugly ideology of empire. Revelation wants to remind its readers what they love and why they want to save it, and it emphasizes God's providence over the future in order to embolden us toward that saving action. 
Revelation wants its readers to act boldly and faithfully in the present because of their faith that God has the last word over history, not because of their fears. And so let go of the despair that weighs you down and robs you of your hope. Hold fast to your faith and thereby free your heart and mind to imagine, with love at the center of all of your actions, how you might live savingly within the life you have been given. And it is not easy to do this hard work of imagining when powerful people have a vested interest in the status quo. But that is our work, to live savingly in faithful anticipation of the seventh trumpet. Amen.